Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute. 2018 has been a year marked by large-scale natural disasters in Indonesia. First, a series of earthquakes from July to August in Lombok left hundreds dead and displaced hundreds of thousands more. Before another massive earthquake on 28 September devastated central Sulawesi's capital city Palu and nearby Donggala district, triggering both a tsunami and destructive soil liquefaction, killing thousands of people. These events illustrate Indonesia's vulnerability to disaster. One recent study found Indonesia suffering the fourth highest frequency of natural disasters globally and the eighth most deaths. In today's episode, we'll ask two leading experts how Indonesia responds to large-scale disasters and whether more could be done to mitigate risks ahead of time. Later in the podcast, we'll hear from Dr. Rahmawati Hussein, Deputy Chair of the Muhammadiyah Disaster Management Centre. But first up, I speak with Professor Kuntoro Manko Subroto, who from 2005 to 2009 headed the BRR, the National Government's Achenias Reconstruction and Rehabilitation Agency, formed in the wake of the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami. After subsequently heading a presidential unit during the Yudhoyono administration, he is currently a professor at the Institute of Technology in Bandung. Pak Kuntoro, could I start by asking... The agency you headed in Aceh, the BRR, was formed to handle the post-tsunami reconstruction there because existing ministries were seen as incapable of handling a disaster of that scale. If we fast forward a decade and a half to the current situation, how would you assess the capability of the Indonesian government at present? Are they better prepared to deal with very large-scale disasters now? Well, maybe the word incapable is too strong. The disaster that hit Aceh and Nias was basically a mega disaster that I believe no other country can cope with this and manage the problem properly. It's just too huge. And that's why from day one, the president decided to open Aceh and yes, for any assistance coming from abroad, whether it's uh, in the format of army or any civil organization, bilateral, or whatever it is, uh, since it's too big and we are overwhelmed with this. So it's not about the ministries that is not incapable. Even the government was really shocked and was in a kind of uh, panic such that we opened Aceh and Nias for any assistance uh, coming from abroad. I'd like to mention that Aceh at the time was not only the most remote area in Indonesia, but also it's under conflict for 25 years, such that when it comes to opening up that region, then it is the military actually who were really affected by that policy. The establishment of 
the so-called BRR, the National Agency for Reconstruction of Aceh-Eneas, is because we like to have one agency, a single agency, on the ground in Aceh that can manage the whole reconstruction in a coordinated way. And if, as any bureaucracy, if an area needs to be rebuilt, then if you leave it to the ministries, then all ministers will come with their budget. And in the southern, you'll find a number of technical ministries uh, working on the ground in a very uncoordinated way. So that's why the government decided to establish this single agency in charge for the rebuilding of Aceh and Nias. It has the power, it has the authority to synchronize every activity on the ground in Aceh, whether it's coming from the bureaucracy of our government or coming from abroad. And I mean, over the following 10 to 15 years in Indonesia, uh, we really haven't seen a repeat of the Aceh experience where the government has simply opened the door to foreign military, to foreign organisations to come in and help. Does that simply reflect the different scale of subsequent disasters or was there something about the, the Aceh experience that has made the government reluctant? There are two things, basically. The, the government observed that BRR was successful and they want to repeat the experience of BRR in terms of its organization and, and on how it works. And that's why immediately after BRR time, the government decided to form a national agency for disaster management. We called it BNPB, based on a law. So basically, in the law it is stated that if another disaster, whether it's a tsunami or earthquake or volcano eruption or whatever it is, then it is the BNPB who is in charge who has the responsibility to be the one who manage either the emergency stage or the rebuilding of that area later on. The second, well, we do hope that there's no disaster like Aceh happen in Indonesia anymore. There is no mega disaster like Aceh happen in Indonesia, such that there's no need actually to create another BRR that is larger and more powerful than BNPB. So actually, the story of BNPB started right after BRR was liquidated. It is BNPB who is in charge, and if they are overwhelmed, then they are the one who give recommendation to the president to open up an area for any international assistance or not. And I mean, could you tell us a little bit more about this National Disaster Management Agency, the BNPB that you've mentioned was formed after Aceh? How powerful an organisation is it? Does it have the resources and the influence to coordinate other ministries? Or is it perhaps not quite as strong as the BRR was during the Aceh reconstruction? Well, I can say from my critical way of seeing things and understanding the way bureaucracy works in Indonesia and on my experience in Aceh, BNPB is not enough. It doesn't have the full power to coordinate the ministries in destroyed area. It doesn't have direct link to ministries. 
the only link is with the president, and the president gave instruction to other ministries. BNPB is, for me, unfortunately, another kind of bureaucracy. Flow of information is slow. Decision-making process is cumbersome. And well, for me, an organization dealing with post-disaster should be filled by young guys, strong, highly motivated. They can operate in any terrain without asking any resources. So basically, it should be organization like this. That's one. The second is that disaster area happen in regions. If there is a volcano eruption in Gunung Merapi, it's in Central Java. If there is a big earthquake in Padang, it's West Sumatra. Question is whether they can operate immediately in those areas. Well, it only depends. Another bureaucratic term is that the government should decide whether it's a national level disaster or just a regional level disaster. When it comes to national, then it's BNPB immediately. But if it's a regional, then it is the BNPB regional. We call it BNPB Day. It's strange for me that there's no direct line between the BNPB, uh, the central government arm for disaster mitigation in Jakarta, with the BNPB Day in the regional provinces. So the regional provinces, BNPB Day, command line goes to the governor. And there is no direct line between the BNPB and, and, and the governor. So for me, it's a missing link that makes things very difficult for any agency like BBD or any other government agency in Jakarta to deal directly with the process for mitigation in affected area without going through the governor or other agencies that is in charge of all this kind of things in the regions whether it's the province or the district. Yeah, sure, sure. And I mean, has the government's handling of the Lombok and Palu disasters been controversial within Indonesia? Have we seen criticism of the Jokowi government's response? Well, basically, as usual in any disaster, for me, it's not very surprising. The criticism is always dealt with the slowness of the response, the incapable way of dealing with this, the unpreparedness of all this equipment that have to be there on the ground on time, but that was not there. So I think this is something that the, the critics coming from the public is uh, all like that. Because, I mean, it's certainly from memory, if I recall correctly, uh, President Jokowi made his address to the closing ceremony of the Asian Games from Lombok in the area affected by the earthquake, and he visited Palu very quickly after the earthquake and tsunami there. Are we right to interpret that as also needing to show a very quick response to, to each of those disasters? Yeah, uh, image-wise, I'm with you. But basically, the Asian bureaucracy is really, what do you call it, uh, very responsive if the president and the leader is also responsive and they will move fast if there's a big push coming from the president okay so i think that's typical bureaucracy in any country if the president move fast then the whole system will also move fast question is whether it was effective or not okay
On this question of effectiveness, you mentioned before some of the difficulties the National Disaster Management Agency, the BNPB, has in playing its coordination role. Another aspect of disaster management in Indonesia that has come under focus, particularly since the Palu quake, is this idea of risk reduction. You know, we heard after the quake that in central Sulawesi that it turned out the tsunami warning buoys had been inactive since 2012, with the BNPB saying there simply weren't enough funds to keep them operating. We heard also that a central government agency had identified the risk of liquefaction, which was so destructive in Palu, but that no local actions were taken to mitigate the risk that liquefaction could present to the city. Should the central government really have been doing more on disaster risk reduction? And why is it difficult for the government to act on warnings like that from its own agencies? Well, it's typical... I don't know whether it's human being or tropical countries or, or what, okay? People are very relaxed when there's no need to move fast. I'll give you an example. During the Aceh time, with support from the German government, we put around 22 buoys, floating buoys for tidal detection as the first indication of whether a tsunami will follow any earthquake. We put 22 covering the southern part of Sumatra, Java, up to Bali. And after how many years, I don't know, none of them is working. There are so many excuses. The battery was stolen, or there's no budget for maintaining it, or whatever. You can come up with uh, any excuses, but that is what's happening. And... I really feel sorry that those important things, important equipment has been maintained like that, okay? So I will not be surprised if other buoys in other areas happen just like what happened with our buoys that we installed during our time. But it's very sad. But it's typical government budgetary system in which that is really necessary is not given priority. Jumping to the second issue, Professor Katili in the late 70s or early 80s already indicated that that area, the Palu area, is not suitable to be developed as an urban area because of the type of soil and also the fall crossing that area. So that based on his white paper, basically we expect the government to come up with a zoning in which that area is not suitable to be developed as an urban area. But what happened? Nobody at that time gave any attention to that white paper, or maybe because there's a big push coming from the central government or the local government to have uh, an area that is suitable because of other priorities. Now, after so many years, after uh, three decades, in the sudden it become the capital city. So, again, if I can say that this is basically the mistake of the government to let people develop that area to become an urban area. Now, if you want to rectify it, then basically you have to move all these people to another area that is far away from the fall and in a, on a suitable type of soil that will not uh, be threatened by uh, 
soil liquefaction like this. Okay, so well, I can say yes. We have to admit that we made a mistake, both in the buoys and in the city planning on urban zoning, such that in the southern we are now stuck with an area that's full with people that we have to relocate. Outside of Indonesia, one issue to do with the Palu quake and tsunami in particular that has got attention has been the Indonesian government's refusal of offers of assistance from, say, the United States military and other foreign militaries who uh, had offered emergency equipment, hospital ships and the like. What was your view of the Indonesian government's decision to turn down foreign military assistance in that instance? I have to see Palu from two perspectives. One is the tsunami-affected area in, in Palu. It's basically incomparable with Aceh. I can see that we can use our own resources to deal with this, this area because of tsunami. But when it comes to soil liquefaction, then I was really surprised because we don't have enough experience to deal with land liquefaction. I understand that New Zealand have uh, large areas like this, and I heard that some years ago it happened also in New Zealand. We can have their experience on how to deal with this. But basically, dealing with soil liquefaction is not easy because there's a big area uh, for 100 hectares, uh, 800 hectares, I don't know, and there are houses there, you have a dilemma. Uh, you want to help to save, but the soil is so soft such that you cannot save them immediately without hurting yourself, okay, or endangering yourself. So you need an extra equipment, you need helicopters, you need, well, I'm not an expert in soil liquefaction, but I understand that there are equipments that heavy equipment that can work on, on the surface, and we don't have that. So for me, when it, when it comes to dealing with soil liquefaction, then I think we should open to any institution outside Indonesia which have the ex- experience in the past dealing with this, and or having equipment, heavy equipment, on how to operate in soft surface like the one that we have it in Malu. So when it comes to solidification, yes, I'm surprised that they're still not welcoming any or not inviting, for me, inviting any uh, institution. On this issue of inviting in international assistance to deal with liquefaction, of course, when President Yudhiyono opened Aceh to international parties, it was just three months into his term and he wouldn't face an election for five years. The Jokowi government faces an election in April. Would it be difficult for them to invite in international militaries or international organizations with heavy equipment so soon before an election? Yes, because it's very sensitive for any critics coming from the public. If you open that area for any foreign military, because in a sudden there will be criticism that we are not capable and we invite foreign military in our soil. That's something that is maybe uh, very difficult for him to cope with at the end of his term instead of if it's at the beginning of his term. Moving on to the reconstruction 
after large-scale disasters like Palu and Lombok. I mean, you were, I understand, you joined Vice President Yusuf Kala in Palu two weeks after the disaster there. What was the situation when you when you visited? Have thoughts started to turn to reconstruction, or are we still very much at an emergency response phase? Basically, we landed there at 9 o'clock in the morning. What I saw is the part of the airport was destroyed, and that's not surprising. On the way to the city, the road is clear, clean from debris. So I can say that cleaning up is a well part of the city at least that I saw is, is already clean, and it's still at the emergency stage, for sure. People live in tents, and people live uh, in shelters, and I, I can see, but uh, I understand that the number is so limited. I saw uh, destroyed areas in the harbor and a collapsed bridge. Uh, so it's a typical post-disaster. But one thing that's dramatic is when I saw the sinking of that area because of the sand liquefaction, that is something that is new for, for me. The first time I saw it, and I feel so bad because it seems to be people cannot do anything. I'm afraid to go inside the area because the soil is still soft, and in some part of the area there are, uh, what do you call it, vacuum holes inside the underground there. So people just watching, do nothing, and that is only very sad because I'm the type that in situation like that you have, you have to do something. You cannot just wait. Waiting for me is not the right word in this kind of situation. No. So I mean, how do you get from a situation of waiting because of the sort of dreadful condition of the soil to a situation where you can start to plan a reconstruction and rehabilitation of the area? What are the immediate challenges in a disaster situation uh, like we have in Palu and earlier in Lombok? Well, when it comes to the tsunami affected areas, you can immediately rebuild it now, okay? You don't have to waste time redesign it, rebuild it, repair it, whatever, okay? You can do it now, okay? But when it comes to the land sinking area, the soil, soil liquefaction area, I think we have to do a very accurate survey of the type of soil in the whole area. Because this soil liquefaction, I'm not a geologist, I'm not an expert on soil, but what I understand is that if there's a combination of an earthquake of seven hectares and it happened for more than 30 seconds or one minute and it hits an area with this kind of soil and the groundwater is uh, less than eight meters, then immediately this hard soil will be transformed to become a soft soil, a mud, a sinking mud, immediately. So the question now is, if that area, the so-called Patobo area, is the only area, then I can feel okay if that area only should be relocated. The question is, what happens if the Richter scale is more than seven, and again, goes to one minute, and the type of soil, just like in the Patobo area, is not only in that area, 
then a much bigger area will be liquefied. So this is the very dangerous situation that we have to anticipate now. So that's why my proposal is that you have to do a very accurate survey about that area. If what was being recommended by Professor Katili, that that kind of soil is everywhere in that area, then actually it's not only that particular Petubo area and two other areas that should be relocated, but the whole area of Palu should be regulated. So that means that you don't need any tsunami post-disaster rebuilding because you move the whole city to another area. Is that a realistic scenario? Well, for me, it's not if it's realistic or not realistic. We are dealing with something that is dangerous in the future. So now you, the government, have to be responsible enough to make decisions whether it is a very hard decision or not so hard decision for the sake of the people that will go back if there is no regulation. So that is something that is very strategic decision that you have to make now because the consequences are very dire. Finally, if you could highlight just one lesson from the response to Aceh for these present-day disasters in Indonesia, what would that lesson be? Well, one thing that is that everything, everything should start from the organization. Everything should start by defining who is in charge and what is his authority. So that is the mantra of effectiveness. If you don't have that, then you, for sure you have a confusing situation. One ministry, the technical ministries, uh, will say that this is my responsibility. And in a sudden, the district head or the governor will say, this is my area, such that I have to not only take part of the process, but also I'm the one who makes decisions, not you. So when they start to work, in a sudden come the military, ready with the troops, the engineers, corps of engineers, and they're ready to work outside the design from those coming from the central government. This should be put in a well-defined structure first before you start doing things. And I'm afraid to say that it's not happening. So in Lombok, you, you see a number of statistics coming from different agencies. In Palu, you see, well, it's still early in Palu, but you can see that there's no clear, what do you call it, organization where clearly defined authority attached to that organization. And this is a recipe for ineffectiveness or a slow process. It's a, certainly a concerning note to, to end on and, and many challenges ahead in the reconstruction after these two disasters and in management of future disasters in Indonesia. But Pak Kuntoro, thanks so much for taking time to share your insights and experiences with us today. It's been great. I thank you so much. You're listening to the Talking Indonesia podcast. Our next guest is Dr. Rahmawati Hussein, Deputy Chair of the Muhammadiyah Disaster Management Centre, part of Indonesia's second largest Islamic organisation. Dr. Hussein is also an advisory board member for Indonesia's National Disaster Management Agency, the BNPB, 
and has just been elected to the advisory board for the United Nations Central Emergency Response Fund. Dr. Rahmawati Hussain, thanks so much for joining us today. You are very much welcome. Now, you're the Deputy Director of a faith-based disaster response organisation, the Mohammadiyah Disaster Management Centre. What role does your organisation play in responding disasters compared to, say, the government, the military, or right down to kind of the ad hoc local volunteer groups that we see spring up in areas where disasters occur? I think that's what the very unique of my organization as a faith-based organization. We are in the community. So we, um, Mohammedah is an oldest organization in Indonesia and also one of the largest with 40 million members. So we have uh, communities all over Indonesia. So this unique is... Um, place uh, Muhammadiyah at well situated to respond at in the first even 12 hours to 72 hours of the critical time of uh, disaster which may not be it might not be had by any other organization so i see that the faith based organization usually are almost always first respondent in emergencies and and they are also found in community that have weak or fragile or dysfunctional government, like if the local government also affected, then the community in general uh, could be uh, the first respondent. And how does the response of a faith-based organization differ from other organizations? Is there a distinctive religious character to it or, or what sets it apart from those other people responding to disasters? We have so many volunteers and uh, more people in the church on the faith uh, institution, they like to donate, like the altruism, the willingness to help is in the spirit of the people in faith. So it is really easy to drive people or to move people to help, which is we don't have any problem to mobilize volunteer, for example. And also uh, local faith community have material and social asset like religious building or any yeah any uh, building that we usually use for the community uh, organization activities and we can use that as an evacuation center and also could help to serve uh, any uh, people in need and you mentioned that typically you would mobilize within the first 72 hours of a disaster happening right now we even because the past 10 years, MDMC been having a increasing capacity. Right now, we can uh, go in even 12 hours. Like in Palu, in the first 12 hours, our member is already on the ground. And uh, like in Palu, because in Sulawesi, we have other, there are four provinces, for example, the district nearby that are not affected by tsunami, they are the first responder, not us from Jaffa or from the main island. So we can mobilize people for the nearby cities or the, uh, nearby communities that are not affected. And we have members there. And we've been having training in all different big islands in Indonesia. Say when you go into an area like Palu, affected by the earthquake or tsunami, or, or Lombok, where we saw the massive earthquake earlier this year, what is the response of the government like to the presence of faith-based organizations in a disaster area? 
Um, are they welcoming? Do you coordinate? Uh, how, how, how does that work? The government is really uh, welcoming. I mean, the humanitarian forum uh, and the member, especially the Muhammadiyah disaster, been uh, worked very closely with the government, not only during the response, because we also do disaster risk reduction or also um, preparedness. And we work with the military as well. So we work uh, like in Palu, the military helicopter transport the Muhammadiyah medical team to reach the remote area. So we don't have any problem working with the military and also with the government. So it's a very unique collaboration and cooperation. And they really, really appreciate what we've done because uh, Muhammadiyah have a very strong in medical team. And I mean, for the community in affected areas where disasters have occurred, do you think they make any distinction between assistance from faith-based organizations from whatever religious group or from the government or from NGOs, or are they just happy for assistance from, from whoever can get to the area? Yeah, the community in Indonesia is very receptive and uh, generous. They never differentiate. So whoever help either from the uh, government, FBO or military, they are okay with that and they are happy to do so. Or even like Muhammadiyah help in the majority Catholic area, for example, in Papua for the blooding. And they also well received because we also work through our counterpart in uh, humanitarian forum. So we work through the interfaith humanitarian actors in Indonesia, try to minimize the conflict in humanitarian assistance. Finally, turning to the future, it has been a year where Indonesia has been struck by a couple of particularly large-scale disasters with the earthquake in Lombok and now this tsunami and earthquake in Palu. Learning from these experiences, I mean, if another large-scale disaster were to happen in the near future, is there one thing that your organisation or the government you think could do better? based on its experience of responding to disasters in Indonesia to date? I think is first education is still matter. We haven't been educate the public more and also strengthening the local capacity. With 537 local government at the regency and district level, the government still have a big homework to strengthen all the local government because almost 90% of government have released any disaster. Uh, so I think strengthening local government need to be put as a priorities for Indonesia because the government, uh, the central government will always come late if things happen. So the local government become the uh, front uh, runner for their ability to reduce this and their uh, district. And also not only improving the local government and also using the science and technology, not only the complicated one, but it's also to educate the people. For example, why the bayou on the ocean not working because some hours hit by the fisherman boat, for example. So the fisherman boat didn't know that the bayou is also used or uh, for a tsunami. So how to educate different or various level of the community, the uh, public uh, in general, including the schools, and also the research need to be improved. I think various things still a long way to do. So although we have already a disaster risk reduction plan, 
in the um, national development planning plan, we still uh, have a big challenge to implement it. So the local government and national development have to put a lot of effort in incorporating the disaster risk reduction into the development. Dr. Rahmati Hussein, thanks so much for taking time out from your work to share your insights today. There's a lot more I can ask you, but I'm afraid we're all out of time. Thanks so much for joining us. It is my pleasure. Our guests today were Professor Kuntoro Mankusubroto and Dr. Rahmati Hussein. You can find their full bios in the episode notes on the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. A reminder also that you can listen to the entire archive of the Talking Indonesia podcast at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog or via your favourite podcasting app. Join us again for our next episode on 8 November with my co-host Dr Gemma Purdy. Until then, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now. Thank you.